Welcome to MobyCast. This is the fifth part of our release and remaster of the birth of NoSQL and DynamoDB. You made it. This is the last one. So in this final installment, Chris talks about the architecture of Leviathan. It was the original internet-scale database made by Chris's own pre-dot-bomb company called Leviathan. It's so cool to remember how we used to build things before the cloud. And actually what's even cooler is how it's not so different than how we build things today and actually even how DynamoDB itself works under the covers, under the hood today. So now, join Chris Hickman, Rich Stats, our former producer, and me, John Christensen, for part five of the birth of NoSQL and DynamoDB. Welcome to MobyCast, a show about the techniques and technologies used by the best cloud-native software teams. Each week, your hosts John Christensen and Chris Hickman pick a software concept and dive deep to figure it out. All right, welcome, Chris and Rich, another episode of MobyCast. So, hey, Chris, you know, this is the second time we've gotten together now after the holidays, and I never asked you what you did. Anything interesting over the holidays? Yeah, it was really nice and relaxing. Got to... uh Steal away a few days down on the Oregon coast um, with the family. So, um, uh, beautiful. Very, very, very beautiful area and um, very relaxing. Excellent. How about you, Rich? What have you been up to? Or what, did you do anything interesting or fun during the holidays? Yeah, I went back to New Jersey and spent time with my extended family. Um, I'm pretty sure I didn't get out of sweatpants the entire time, which is usually the goal. Uh, Excellent. So, so, yeah, it was good. Cool. So we do MobyCast from our sweatpants as it is. So there we go. Um, (laughs) Speak for yourself. I dressed up for this. (laughs) Uh, As for my holidays, I stuck around Eagle, Colorado, because this is the place to be during the holidays. Like we're kind of close to the Eagle Airport. You know, you can see the planes coming in as they go towards the Eagle Airport from from our front window. And around the holidays, you just we just see that traffic pick up from. A plane an hour to a plane every two minutes. So people were streaming in, getting ready to get their Christmas in the mountains on. And it was a good thing to do. It was a, it was a white Christmas here in the mountains. Um, so yeah, over the last four episodes, we've been talking about DynamoDB and we are not done. Last week we talked, we got into, you know, just the re- real detail of the, of the physical sort of and logical architecture of DynamoDB. I guess really the logical architecture of DynamoDB, how it's how the sharding works and how the what a storage node consists of and and the request the request router, the partition metadata system, and we didn't really talk much about auto admin except for towards the end. But this week we're going to kind of keep all that architecture in mind and go back and visit uh, revisit where this all started, which is with um, the company that Chris <coughs> founded called Viathan. And the company that he founded several years before DynamoDB was even a twinkle in Werner Vogel's eye. So, yeah, let's maybe Chris, if you could just help me do a little bit better job of the of the recap, um, just in a couple minutes of of where we were with the DynamoDB architecture. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So with with uh, with DynamoDB, we kind of called out the the high level components, and those were the, re- the request router, which was. That was the, the front end to the system. That was what all clients using DynamoD, they're hitting that front end, and that request router is responsible for figuring out where the data 
is that that's being requested to either be read or or written to where does it live which storage storage node partition is it on and so um that was the other one of the other major components we talked about were these these storage nodes and these are those um, home partitions for all the data that's in DynamoDB, they, they're composed of three components there. They have the, the leader, the storage node leader, and then there's two secondaries, which are, represent the, the replicas. We also talked a little bit about the fact that the default behavior for DynamoDB is to be eventually consistent, so it doesn't wait for all secondaries to be updated before it re- returns back a response, although you can configure that to say that you do want it to be strongly consistent, but there's trade-offs with that kind of decision. Um, we also talked about the um, partition metadata system, kind of like the the routing tables, if you will, for DynamoDB, and, and given a, a particular piece of data, where does it live? Um, and then you have auto admin, um, which is their kind of integrated monitoring, healing, uh, repartitioning. Just re, yeah, just it, basically all that kind of housekeeping that goes on with kind of running a system like this that's so dynamic and where you do need to to reshuffle things periodically. So they had the auto admin component. So those those were the four primary components that we talked about with DynamoDB, and keeping those in mind will serve useful as we go into this this next discussion about okay well what was what came before that what was leviathan great and you know that the, all four of those things sound fairly complex when you just listen to their names but it's really just easy it's like you've got some data you want to stick it somewhere you got a lot of data it's in a lot of different places so you have request routers to get you to where your data is and you have a partitioning partitioning metadata system to kind of remember where everything is it's like you're it's like you're <laughs> for some reason i'm thinking of a that whole idea of having a castle in your mind where you where you put it has different rooms so you can remember things like oh I put this memory in this part of the castle that's your partition metadata system so yeah let's move away from DynamoDB and go back roll back the clock a little bit and talk about the Leviathan architecture sure you bet and maybe just a quick recap um, you know we we talked about this in previous episodes if you haven't listened to the the previous episodes in this series definitely go back and and do so. Before DynamoDB in the late 90s, I was working at a startup and we had the same kind of problems that DynamoDB had. The reason why DynamoDB came about where how do you scale your database dealing with internet scale applications and how do you have this uh, virtual pool of just infinite storage storage that can be scaled out. Um, So that was what that company was trying to do. We called this this NoSQL database that we're building. It was the the code name was Leviathan. Just have to interrupt you, which which remember is part of the whole Moby Dick theme of everything we ever talk about <laughs> yeah. here at Calsus and ProDocker training. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so yeah, so maybe digging into that a little bit again. It was really interesting for me um, whenever I see like the discussions about DynamoDB about like what were the pain points, why it came about. Um, what are the high-level components? And then when I sat in on this this deep dive during reInvent of like, what's the architecture look like for DynamoDB? It's it's super interesting because it is really similar to the work that was done on on Leviathan. And so, just like with DynamoDB, there's we talked about the four main architecture components. We can also talk about you know there's primarily four main architecture components for Leviathan as well. A little bit different, but pretty close. Um, so. The first one would be the the API API client itself. We'll get back to this, but 
in the Leviathan architecture, the, the API client itself is very much a, a key piece of the of the distributed system. Then we is, had is the front door to Leviathan. It is. I mean, it's it's it, it it's it's not. I mean, it, it's it's it was the API implementation. I mean, we we were. You know, this is late '90s, so things like RESTful APIs um, didn't really exist. The, the ecosystem wasn't there for kind of having like this the same kind of like API-driven development that we have now. So, mm-hmm. typically, what you did is you you built an API. It was a, a a custom API, and you know, you may have your own wire protocol. Um, you, you may go over HTTP, you may not, and then you typically delivered that functionality via an SDK. Um, mm-hmm. And so that SDK was basically, you know, client-side code libraries um, that someone that, that wanted to use this API, they would they would link in those libraries um, and get that code to use it. So that ended up being the way that we delivered our functionality, the way that um, folks would consume this functionality and, and, and hook into this, into this um, storage system. And because it wasn't just an API, but it was also code. Um, we could then, you know, add additional um, value, put additional value added functionality into it. So it ends that's up the being, only part that that doesn't happen anymore, right? So, like, even with HTTP APIs, I'm I'm yet to meet a developer that isn't like, uh, do you have an SDK? <laughs> Is there any way I can not have to write all that HTTP? Handshaking logic and just get you know use the SDK please. But the part that we don't do anymore is stick much beyond just the the communications into that into that SDK. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And in in our particular case, like we didn't really have a really didn't have a choice here. Um, mm-hmm. But um, so yeah. So that that was um, one of the key components. Another one we um, named it the update distributor or UD for short. And this was a, a piece of the system that was responsible for handling write request. A third component was we called it the base server, um, for for lack of a of a better name. Um, and this was really our our storage node. And so this was what basically where the data was was stored. Um, it dealt with um, everything else up, uh, around it. So very very similar to the storage node concept in DynamoDB. And then the fourth component is we called it Shepherd, um, and Shepherd was our management system, um, the way of doing the housekeeping, the way of knowing when to do partition splits. It was responsible for mi- migrating data when it had to from one partition to another one and whatnot. So all the basically everything that you you know managing state. I mean, it also kept track of the cluster and partition maps in our system. Um, so uh, when we talked about DynamoDB, they, they broke out their, their, their partition metadata system is separate from auto admin. Um, with us, it was for, for, the, for the purposes of this talk, it was all combined into the one component, which we call Shepherd. Interesting. So those are the four key components. There's also some things that we may talk that may come up during the rest of this conversation are some additional core components that we have, which were one we called smart IP. This you don't need anymore because now we have things like elastic load balancers. Um, but back then we didn't have that. So we came up with this this term smart IP, which was essentially virtual IP, a way of having a single 
way of addressing a cluster of resources and having the, the load balancing and the being done across that set and being able to dynamically change the set of nodes that are in that particular, that are behind that particular IP address. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to build that ourselves. So we had that. And then another um, kind of core system component we have was, we called it, our, it's, it was our storage abstraction layer um, or SAL. What this was, was a, it was a, um, a layer that was used by our base server, this, that storage nodes capability to have it interface with actual, whatever, what was actually being used as the persistent store. And so we had this concept of, of basically abstracting that. I'm the, a little confused by this. This is the one piece so far that I'm like, huh, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this, this system and this technology went through many um, iterations in the first iteration the storage nodes where um, we were using relational databases as the as the storage. Oh, nodes, okay, right? So this storage abstraction layer, what it would do is it would make it so that it could speak a common language and you could plug in, you know, maybe Microsoft SQL Server or Oracle DB um, yep. as your as your storage node, right? So that's what that that was. And eventually it grew to become you know, even more capable where it's not just um, talking to relational databases, but what about file systems sure, as sure. well? So, yeah. so that's what, there, there was this, the rec- recognition that the base server had some common logical features and, and, compon- and, and functionality that it, it served. And that was irregardless of what, how it was actually storing it on, you know, persistent at the disk or whatnot. So things like caching and the query engine, all that stuff was up at the in the base server level. Um, and then when we had to go actually persist it out, then we went through that storage abstraction layer. I, ju- I just can't help myself. At the moment that you were building that part of your system is, is when you could have also been like, mm, this company is now spending a great deal of money on a, on a piece of the system that's not it's you know it's like ah, what's the best way to put this in startup terms? You're building something, and you don't have anybody using it. That's like in a, in a startup. If you can't get people to use like the the steel thread that goes all the way through, like hey, here's the here's the like opinionated version of this. Um, if people are like not willing to use the opinionated version, then making each each little piece like really super configurable probably isn't the solution. But I digress. Like it's just like as soon as I heard that, I was like, "Oh my god, that's that's like a lot of engineering for a startup that that probably didn't have any, you know, customers at that point." Yeah, I mean, maybe kind of like paradoxically, it it was actually probably cleaner to do it this way because it it forced us to componentize the way sure. we were thinking about things, right? So like we could have had like just hard coded Microsoft SQL queries. Um, mm-hmm. Littered throughout, like the base server, um, mm-hmm. would that have gotten us? The, and, and we only, we we had like a few people on the team, like that were like SQL experts, right? Not everyone right. was, so there were definitely benefits to do, to doing that. And so it wasn't so much for the ability to go and support like anything out of the gate. Um, okay, it was a lot of this was more for just architectural reasons. Okay, okay, I wouldn't let you do it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, anyway, I got I got to get off that. Like this is this is like a constant thing for me. Is like over it's like sort of over engineering that startups do. So that's why I was like grabbing on that piece. 
Yeah, let's just keep talking about where this, like, what were some of the aha moments that were happening for you as you were sort of thinking about your old architecture and thinking about DynamoDB? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so maybe just dive in a little bit deeper into what those four primary components do. Um, so again, the API client, in a way that you can kind of think of this as this is um, the equivalent of the re- parts of the request router in the DynamoDB system. So we didn't have that. Instead, we because we actually had code running on the clients, we could include them as part of the actual system itself. And so things like the um, the equivalent of the partition metadata, that was pushed into the clients. And what this gave rise to is that when they were doing read operations, they wouldn't have to go through an intermediary service. They could actually go talk direct. They, they, would, they would have all the information that they, they needed to go straight to the right base server. Um, so kind of interesting, different. I mean, there's, there's definitely pros and cons to it, but you are reducing. Um, it's one last path that you're going through um, on the read case. Was there a situation with that where um, different clients could get out of sync with each other and that be a problem? Um, well, I mean, there's lots of consistency problems and um, uh, synchronization issues and like what happens if, if some state changes and how do you get it distributed to all of them, um, to, to all the players in the system in, in a way that's safe and, and mm-hmm. still, still meaningful. Absolutely. There are lots of pretty challenging problems throughout this, this whole system. But in general, you know, without diving deep into, you know, all those various techniques can say that, you know, for the most part, the simple case of like, hey, I got to go read some data, having the information necessary there to go get it. That was doable. And there was there was techniques and parts of the system that handled, you know, what happens when it did get out of date or, or whatnot. Right. Well, I imagine that um, a, a connected client is kind of always saying, hey, let me know if the, if the sort of map of where the data is has changed. And if it does, then it grabs a new map of where all the data is. And then if a client is not connected for a while and then connects, like that's, it probably has to go ask for that before it's allowed to do any work. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's versioning and there's, you know, it's very, there's a lot of event driven components into this system so that when changes do happen, I mean, this is essentially distributed caching, right? Yep, so exactly. not an easy thing to do, but, but definitely solvable. Um, and so that's really kind of what it came down. And a lot of times it's, you know, you can't have a 100% consistent state, right? Across everything. It's just impossible. There's just timing issues, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and so how do you detect when you are at a state, right? And what do you, how do you do the right thing? You know, what happens when you're, when you're now have a cash conflict type thing. So mm-hmm. all that stuff had to be thought through and, and dealt with. And, um, you know, again, a lot of that functionality went into the, to these API clients. So again, given that we, this was written in either C code or Java code, and there was the code to handle that in that. That was going to be one of my questions. So was most of the Leviathan, was it mostly C, mostly Java, mostly C++? Yeah, it was It was all C++ and, and really just using C++ as a better C. Um, so not a lot of, like, not tremendously object-oriented, um, used okay. classes sparingly where it made sense and mm-hmm. um, inheritance where it made sense. But for the most part, it was, it was C code. 
the the only Java code was for our Java based um, SDK. Um, oh, the, Java, the Java API, right? Because we, because we, we knew we had to support that out of the gate. We had to support. Yeah, for sure. There's no you know, question. You, you're either right 2001 Java, 1999 Java. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was either Java or Windows, right? That's what mm-hmm. that's what people are running. So we knew we had to support those two those two um, environments, and so Java was our answer, also for you know Unix and Linux type thing. Quick interruption to ask you to please go to mobicast.fm slash show dash notes and sign up for our show notes. Those give us a chance to send you the show notes once a week. Um, They're detailed outlines that have all the information that we present in the show, which makes your email searchable. Really cool. And we definitely don't use that address to spam you. In fact, we can barely remember even to send out the show notes every week. So thanks for signing up. Right, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and uh, I guess I'm just thinking about the fact that you know the big the big difference between DynamoDB and um, Leviathan that we've talked about so far is the you know the request router and partition metadata system living on the server versus living out at the edge, mm-hmm. and it's just fascinating to me because um, that sort of back and forth just happens and happens over and over. Like one year it's better to push stuff out to the edge because you get better scalability and you know less work to, for the servers to do. So a, a speedier little system, distributed system that you've got going. And then the next thing it's like, no, but then it's hard to do updates and you can have out-of-date clients and so let's do everything on the server. And then the next thing it's like, oh, well, you can push out code from the server, so let's just do it that way again. And like we can never really so- decide as a group, as a community, as, as software developers on really where the balance is, is best. And we, we keep like vibrating across either side of that balance. Yeah, I mean, and it's just like technology in general, just the, the constant iteration and, you know, different techniques and there's technological advances and things like, you know, bandwidth changing and, and number of, you know, CPU powers changing and, you know, the cloud versus on-prem, that changes things and whatnot. So it does, you know, Every time you go design a system, right? There's, there's not necessarily, it's not necessarily one right way of doing it. And, you know, maybe yeah, this year the doing something, pushing it out, and have it, you know, on the edge, um, the work being done on the edge makes makes sense for your particular application versus, you know, some other application because of some some changes in you know cloud or some new service that you have available to you, and maybe you don't need to maybe there's some constraint that you can put into your system where it makes sense that you should do stuff on, you know, the server side and keep it central. It would Uh, not surprise me whatsoever if, if AWS did something like, Oh, we've, you know, we've created a new feature of DynamoDB smart edge processing where they essentially push the request router and partition metadata system out to like green grass edge type stuff. So like it can be even faster for, you know, systems that are doing IOT or whatever. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised at all, especially because can't you already run DynamoDB locally? Isn't that a thing? Yeah, you can run DynamoDB locally. It's um, yeah. that's mostly for um, testing, right? D- testing and just development, right? But absolutely, you know, with 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 IoT and what what AWS is doing with Greengrass, you also have Snowball um, and adding in its edge computing capabilities. Yeah. So, I mean, the things that can be done at the edge will be done at the edge, and it, and it usually almost always makes sense to do so. Um, you just have to balance out. Like, there's 
what's the overhead of doing that? So if you can make it so that there's very little state shared between these things that are out on the edge and um, kind of like phoning back home to a, to a central data center, then you can scale out very easily. Um, and you do want to push that computing to the edge and mm-hmm. not have to do that computing inside your, inside your cloud, inside your data center. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have to, when it's more of a, um, a bi-directional communication path, then you start running into a whole bunch of, of problems, right? Like it's now as you scale up, it becomes exponentially more difficult to, to handle that and becomes more complicated. So it just, it just really depends on, you know, your situation and what it is that you're trying to do, what the constraints are, what the, what the access patterns are to decide what's the, the best thing for us. We had, this was, a, this is a, and this is a good point, right? Because with us, this was very much kind of more of a closed system, so our clients were, again, these are heavy clients. Um, they're um, going into application code for services that are consuming this this storage service. You know, this was a close. This was a closed system, um, and you would have an instance for every every network that you had or every data center that you may have had. Right? It didn't really support the concept of like this wasn't designed to be run as a like service um, software as a service type thing. And you would right. have multiple applications. There were rate ways to, to do namespace partitioning to have multiple applications. But for the most part, I think this is like each customer would have their own implementation, right? It wasn't like one implementation for millions of, of clients out there. Right. Um, and so with that, having, you know, these, these, these um, thick clients that were active members of the distributed system, that kept that number finite, and so it was just much. It, it wasn't. It wasn't really a, an issue, right? We knew mm-hmm. that there was going to be like tens of these things or hundreds of these things. It wasn't like with DynamoDB. DynamoDB is 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 offered as a service, and you have you know you can have tens of thousands or hundreds hundreds of thousands of clients. Um, so pushing state out into those clients like that, like that, would be much more problematic. Right. Yeah. And you, another thing you mentioned that you were able to do because it was a closed system is being strongly consistent um, versus Dynamo's, DynamoDB's eventually consistent model. Talk about that. Yeah. So, so this gets into that update distributor component. So, so we've talked about like the read path. So because the, we have these thick clients and they have access to the, to the metadata in the system, they know, they can figure out which smart IP address for which storage server that they need to go talk to for the read for the read pass for the write pass they went through this component called the update distributor and this one this was responsible again for every every mutation so for every creator update request or delete it would those requests would go through it and its its responsibility was basically to do the replication so it would it was essentially doing a two-phase commit across multiple replicas. Um, and so that's why, why our system was strongly consistent. This was just the um, design approach we took from the get-go, um, is that basically we would have this synchronous two-phase commit style replication of these, these write commands so that they would be replicated to, to at least two base servers, but it would do that all synchronously and then reach and then return back um, to the caller that, you know, now that that write is complete. So that's why we were strongly consistent, you know, with the difference with DynamoDB is with DynamoDB, the, they're doing those um, 
those rights to the secondaries via true replication. Um, so they're they're going. I, I don't know exactly like the details whether they actually have like if their actual storage node has code where it's doing the the actual writes itself, or whether they're writing the logs and there's a replication component that's reading from the logs and and then forwarding the you know making those updates on the the, the secondaries. I would um, guess the latter, but yeah, who knows? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that was the, that was the approach that, that they took there. So I want to interrupt you for just a second, cause you were talking about two phase commits and I'm just thinking about our audience. And one of the things I've noticed in the past 20 years is that there's less and less talk of transactions among developers for whatever reason. I just remember it being a constant theme of daily design and architecture conversations around the office in from like 2000 to 2005 or so. And then just. It's like the whole idea just disappeared. Um, we're not worried, you know, I think it's because it all got subsumed into libraries and tools that people used in a way that was good enough that, that if you have to think about transactions, you're, you know, now you can count yourself among the senior developers. But yeah, can you just tell us, I mean, tell us what a transaction is and tell us what a two-phase commit transaction is. Two-phase commits are basically just a way of, of implementing a, a transaction in a distributed system with, with multiple participants. So transaction just means something, you're, you're wrapping um, a sequence of, of one-to-end commands and you want that all to run together as one unit. And so it either all of it, all of it succeeds or if any one of those things doesn't succeed, then the entire thing fails and you don't change any state whatsoever, right? So yep. you, could, you could have a series of, of commands, like, like five different commands that you're doing. You could be updating like five different pieces of data. Maybe it's across like even two systems. So you want all that to happen as one atomic unit. And if it doesn't, then nothing should be changed. And so you have to have a way of reverting, if you will. Like if you're trying to, again, if you're, have five commands and the first three commands succeed and then the fourth fails, well, then you have to roll back, right? So you yep. have to undo what was done on those first three. So two-phase commit is just, it's, 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 a, it's a technique where basically it's just saying, look, hey, we're, the first phase is going in and doing this update across all of the, the components. And then the second phase is getting back the response that, yep, that happened correctly and then go ahead and committing it if you will, um, to say now that this this should be this should be available now in the system and 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 it's now committed to the to the system. Yeah. So phase one is like send out the work, have it all so that it all gets done somewhere else. And phase two is get all the acknowledgments back that the work was done and collect them all. Mm-hmm. Once you've got all, got them all collected, then go ahead and lock it down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So that's that's what our update distributor basically did. So it did that. And we actually had the concept where we weren't just, you didn't have to have just two replicas. You could have as many as you wanted. Um, and so you would, this allowed you to scale out for read operations, right? So we, we were very much interested in read performance. Um, that was by far the dominant traffic coming through the system. So to go and, and have multiple replicas of your base server and allow any one of those to be read from, the more you had, right, the more your read throughput was. And if your write throughput was a small fraction of your read throughput, then the overhead of the two-phase commit to go across N resources definitely was a good trade-off for having the, the multiple replicas for your increased read performance. 
And so that was, that was the update distributor's job. Cool. Yeah. And then just, I guess the, the last thing to talk in a little bit of detail would be that shepherd component. So this was one of the ones that the really hard discussions, um, this is where the hard problems were and, you know, how do you, how do you deal with these consistency issues? How do you deal with these timing issues, timing issues and synchronous issues? How do you know who is what and who's the manager? Who's the, who should be the leader? Who's the master? Um, as opposed to who's a, you know, who are the replicas and how do you deal with, with failures and whatnot? So Shepard, we, we ended up building this as a central, there was a central service. Um, but then, we had agents. Um, so it was also a part of it was an agent that would go on each one of the machines that was part of the system. Um, there'd be the shepherd agent running on it. So there was this, it was this bi-directional communication between them. So we had a separate management protocol, basically a, a control plane, if you will, um, for the system. And that was implemented through shepherd and it's, and it's agent based architecture. And so shepherd would give you an overall view of the system. It, it, it was what allowed you to add new nodes to the system or remove nodes. It would detect failures. It would be responsible for health checks. It handled all the metadata, the partitions, the clusters, and everything else associated with it. And then it did data migration, which was a, a pretty big topic for us as well to deal with. So whenever you sure. had these these splits that had to happen, so a partition got too hot, um, you needed to split it, and now you would have to move data from from one um, base server to another one. And, you know, how do you do that in a, in a way that's consistent and safe? It had um, functionality for, for that as well. Yeah, right on. And, you know, while it's a shame that so much really good engineering didn't get much use, it is cool to see that that's an intellectual property that you created and registered with with the patent office, you know, got revisited and got put into, you know, got essentially listed as the, the foundations of DynamoDB. I was just say, yeah, it would be interesting someday to, you know, under, you know, find out just, you know, how much, if, if there was any cross-pollination there, if it was just kind of like serendipitous, like same problem space and similar solutions being developed type thing, so. And it, it could be, you know, it, like on the one hand, it's like, well, this is a really specific system and it sure is interesting to see how closely the two are aligned. But on the other hand, it is, you know, it's a very specific problem too. It's like, how do you, how do you get data and access it across many, many nodes efficiently? And, mm -hmm. and it sort of is, it sort of does lend itself to a certain way of thinking about things. Yep. I have a question for you though. Do you know when, um, when is the last time that Leviathan got booted up and run on a, on a machine or multiple machines? That was a long time ago. Um, I was wondering if you tried to, tried to give it a, you know, <laughs> no, it would it would it would be so challenging to do so. Um, you know, it would have to be. Uh, I mean, this was all built on like Windows two thousand Windows two K. It was all Windows stuff. Yeah, that makes it harder. I think if it would have been just kind of pure, if it had been Linux stuff, it might be easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think but, the rate of change in in the Linux you know systems is sort of slower, yeah. and the backwards compatibility better. Yeah, yeah. This is very. It was very low level system code. Right. I think we we actually use some of the kernel APIs. I think um, as well with with NT some of the undocumented kernel APIs. So it would be very challenging, um, but you know not impossible. I mean, I 
source code is still still here. Um, <laughs> and so like it's just a matter of I'm, you know the truth is there's probably there is if you I'm sure if you go onto AWS right now there's an AMI for Windows 2K server. So oh yeah yeah um, definitely you know given that and then you know at that point it's just you need the Visual, Visual Studio for the compiler, right? The, the Microsoft C++ compiler. Um, and if you can get that, then like you're good to go and you can fire it up. But I think the last time that this was probably um, run was probably like 2001. Um, again, at, at Viathan, we went through some, some iterations and some, some different uh, domain changes with this. So this was the, the first... Um, iteration of this technology was using this um, adaptive partitioning architecture against using relational databases as the storage mechanism and really abstracting at the database level. We then took the same technology and repurposed it for file systems. And that became kind of like the much more the focus. And that actually continued to live on um, beyond the company a bit as well. So we, we we did that just because it, the the friction associated with the technology of adopting the technology was so much less with the file system because there were no code changes that that need to happen. We could provide basically our clients as like SIFs or NFS drivers. By doing so, it just became very easy for folks to to now you know adopt this technology. So this ended up. And, and again, like I said, it's almost the exact same technology architecture and whatnot. It's just a different base server is is really what we were dealing with. Um, and basically, we you you had a a full blown like virtualized file system with infinite scale, and that was the 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 next iteration of this technology for that company. Huh, interesting. So you built more or less EFS out of your. Leviathan. Yeah, it was more like S3 in that. More like S3. Okay. You could, yeah, you could, you could, um, you know, store a file. But, but also, yeah, I mean, it kind of similar to, to, I guess you're right. It was actually closer to EFS because we were, that was our, the way that we hooked into it was through the file system driver. Um, uh-huh. and we didn't, we yeah, didn't but... want to, re- we didn't want to require people to write code, right? So, right. That, that lended more towards, like, okay, this is just a big virtual file system. It's your Z drive or whatever. Yeah. The, the actual technology and the primitives were actually closer to what S3 does. Hmm. Um, but the way that it was adopted kind of felt more like EFS, probably. Super interesting. Well, I think, I guess we should probably wrap it up, but this has been fascinating to, to, Talk about Leviathan and your history and DynamoDB and its future and, yeah. and how, you know, 20 years on, they are still getting around to some of the features that you had built 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. It's been, it's been super interesting and, and, and fun for me to kind of look back and just again, just be amazed by how much is just the same, like the same, same problems. And, um, a lot of things haven't changed. So as fast as technology change is like, and we've talked about this before in previous episodes, like it is cyclical and there are certain patterns and techniques that do dominate. And, uh, you know, I think this is an example where that's indeed the case. Right. And I'm I'm reminded of a conversation I had with you a few years ago, I think where, I was telling you about this company that I worked for or you know did some contracting with called Taz and I was telling you how they had one developer that decided to just do everything and see um and and this was like 
you know, long after anybody was building any kind of web backends in C. But for some reason he was. And then not only was he doing that, but he had decided to build his own his own document database, despite the existence of Mongo at the time. Um, and I was telling you how he had done sharding and had done a, you know some replica stuff. And I was like, why is he building all this? This all exists. And I, I just kind of remember you being like, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> well, that'll be that. I mean, and again, it's one thing to, to do like the base stuff, like to get the... Um, to handle like 80% um, yeah. of the situation of, 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 you know, handle the eight, the first 80%, like you can just do that by like, like those main pieces, right? Like having things like sharding and some replication and, and, and the document portion of the database, but it's the last 20% that is so uh, yeah. hard. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that's the stuff that prevents you from actually deploying and from actually like running, you know, in, in some kind of available fashion. All right. Well, let's uh, leave it for next week. And next week, we're going to have a new topic. We haven't decided yet what it's going to be, but uh, looking forward to talking to you again and, and hope everybody enjoyed. Sounds good. Thanks, Thank guys. You. See ya. Bye. See Rich. Thanks for listening to that episode. You heard Chris Hickman, John Christensen, that's me, and you also heard Rich Tatz, who was our original producer and the person responsible for the idea of MobyCast. We miss him, but we still work with him in other parts of our business. Um, And also a special thanks to our producer, Roy England, and we are real people that you can find and really communicate with, and we're available at mobicast.fm and also on Reddit at r slash mobicast. See you next week.